Hello, wonderful people. Welcome to the Birmingham Literature Festival Presents podcast. I am Casey Bailey, former Birmingham Poet Laureate, and I was delighted to be one of the guest curators for the 2022 Birmingham Literature Festival. For the next few weeks, we're going to bring you some highlights from last year's festival for you to enjoy whenever you'd like. You can subscribe to this podcast feed and get the new episodes as soon as they're available. This week's episode is housing lawyer Hashi Mohammed speaking to guest curator Atega Uwagba. Hashi's family arrived in the UK as refugees from Somalia in the 1990s and his book A Home of One's Own is the story of his family as well as that of every family in the UK trying to carve out their own space in a broken housing system. everyone. This is a lovely turnout. Um, thank you all for coming. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Tegi Wagba and I am a writer and journalist. I've written a couple of books about work and money and race and I'm really delighted to be here today in my capacity as one of the three guest curators of this year's Birmingham Literary Festival. Um, so I'm really, really delighted to be able to dive into some topics that I find really fascinating with some authors who I find really fascinating. And that brings me on to the star of the show, Hashi Mohammed, who I'll just introduce you quickly, who arrived in Britain as a child refugee and is now a barrister at Number 5 Chambers in London, a contributor to The Guardian, The Times and Prospect. He has also explored class and mobility for the BBC. His first book, People Like Us, looked at social mobility and inequality. And A Home of One's Own, which is up here, is his second book. It's a fantastic essay. I read it in one sitting. And do you know what? I'm not going to summarise what it's about. I'm going to let you introduce the book and tell people what the book is about. So, yeah, yeah you thank you. And thank you, everyone, for, uh, for coming. Um, the Home of One's Own was... It, it's really fundamentally about what it means to have a home mm. and what it means to have a space that you can call your own, that you can build as part of your family or as an individual or as a person who wants that safe, secure environment to come to every day and leave from every day and what it actually means on a personal level not just about buying a house or renovating a house or 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 trying to get a mortgage uh, and so on but rather what is it about the personal aspects of the impact that a home has on somebody's mental health physical health their well-being, their ability to aspire, to dream, to have opportunities in life, and everything that comes with that secure environment that allows you to propel yourself into society. And what does it mean to be secure in that context? And, And that's what really the book was about. And interestingly, when I wrote it, you know, finished it last year, starting to sort of finesse it this year, one of the things I talked about was how much the housing market was a broken system and how it was effectively a Ponzi scheme being propped up by the banks. And now we're all having a meltdown about the housing market. So that doesn't, you know, it's a bit of a horrible time, but I I have to say it's been good sales for the book. It's a mercenary author thing, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah, I guess. Well, it helps with the book sales. Even if it's in bad situation for a lot of people. (laughs) I mean... It's clear to me from reading from reading the book um, that it's definitely informed by some of your own personal experiences. And I was wondering if you could just kind of set the scene and kind of tell us about which personal experiences yeah. inform the book. The, the book really, I begin by telling the story of us, if you can imagine, one adult 
with about six, seven young kids following behind that one adult, my sister at the time. And we're headed to a place called the Mahatma Gandhi House. And that journey would often be from North Wembley to the center of Wembley. And the journey would normally have taken about 10 minutes if we were on the tube. But actually, it would probably have taken us maybe an hour and a half with the kids walking because we just walked there every day. And Mahatma Gandhi House was this building that was supposedly the housing uh, department of Brent Council. And we would go there every day and sort of remind them that there were three households living in one house, that there were 18 of us sharing three bedrooms and that we were all kind of overcrowded, squalor conditions, and that we needed help. And every day we'd go there and wait and wait and wait and be told to come back tomorrow. And every day we would get up and think, okay, should we go back today or should we give it another day? And that would carry on for about two years. And this was the sort of start of, the, of our journey of homelessness in terms of understanding what that meant, the overcrowding, the difficulties with dealing with council administration, and, and what that all meant. And so it's, it's that moment that begins the story of the book where I kind of say, this is what I was experiencing as a child. Mm. I wasn't quite sure what it was, but it turns out that it's something called homelessness mm. and precarious living. And this is what I've discovered since. Yeah. I mean, something that I really appreciated about the book and that I feel kind of deviates from a lot of the conversations around housing and the housing crisis in general at the moment is that often those are framed purely in terms of the, or largely in terms of the kind of economic ramifications and here is how much people are spending on rent over the course of a lifetime. All these things which are very, very important, don't get me wrong. But your book touches on that, but it really talks more, as you said earlier, about the kind of emotional and psychological impact. So just a quote from the book, you say about that child at home, the, the cramped flat we were stuffed into seemed to limit our horizons, not just physically, but mentally. And then you later say, a home to call one's own is one of the most important foundations for anyone seeking personal advancement, security, and a stable future. Why was it so important for you to focus on that element of it as opposed to the more kind of, I guess, macroeconomic? Yeah, I, I suppose when I, if we go back one step, which is when I wrote my first book, People Like Us, which mm. was about social mobility, mm. I could easily have written a very academic book about the statistics of getting a job and, you know, how certain ways in which you were behaving or the education system would make it kind of difficult for you and the kind of stats and data. But I find that when you tell effectively the same thing, but through a personal story or a story that, or a narrative that people can relate to, it, it brings the issue that you're facing to the surface. And so when I embarked on this book, I thought to myself, I'm a, I'm a planning lawyer. I could really bore people about planning <laughs> legislation and, you know, all of the crap that, that I've had to learn at law school. <laughs> or I could tell them the exact same thing, but through another means, which is through the stories. Because people, if you think about the earliest, you know, known paintings in caves, people were telling stories in those caves about journeys, about figurines of human beings on camels are still in those sort of prehistoric caves because we as human beings instantly react to stories. Mm. 
And so when I was writing this, it was really important that I just didn't bombard people with the statistics behind help to buy or right to buy or mortgage statistics or affordability ratios and mortgage markets. And I could have done that. And a lot of it is in the book. If you go to the bibliography, you'll see all the stats and the data and the information that underpins the story. But I wanted to tell a different angle to this, which was, look, if as a society, we want people to feel secure, to have ambition, to dream, to fulfill their dreams, to think about where they are in society, to think about what they might want to contribute as a society, to think about what kind of home they want to provide for their children, what kind of home they want to provide for their families, what kind of environment they can sit around a table and eat, go to bed unmolested by, you know, stupid council letters and letters from the courts and waking up every morning with damp and mold all around you, fundamentally all that comes down to where you lay your head. And if that basic foundation is so difficult for so many people in society, well then we are stifling the progress from everything that flows from that. And that's what I wanted to portray and put across. Definitely. And the amount of, I guess, mental space that housing insecurity occupies, anyone who's, you know, rented or, you know, had that thing of, oh my God, is my landlord going to evict me? Is he going to put the rent up? You know, I spent a few years at the mercy of the London rental market, which I think is probably one of the most brutal um, in the country, just because of the nature of how expensive London is. And I would say that those were the most anxious years of my oh, adult yeah. life, just kind of constantly thinking. Anytime something happened, if, if my housemate got a new boyfriend I was counting down until how long maybe she might decide to move in with him or move and and move out of your place yeah exactly and then then what that means for me so you know all these so instead of being like oh my god exciting you're thinking how is this going to affect my housing security which is a terrible thing but before we kind of really dive into things I think it's probably useful to do a bit of setup and to frame this conversation and it'd be great if you could summarize you know quite briefly why is there a housing crisis in the UK? What are the kind of historical... Yeah, yeah well, it's all in the book, but what I are, can, Yeah, exactly. Very I can briefly, definitely help. What are the historical and the kind of ongoing factors that have led to this? Very good question. In a, in a sort of in a nutshell for you, in the post-war period, this country embarked upon one of the largest scale of house building exercises known in the Western world for a long time such an extent that we were building close to 300, 400,000 houses a year. And in that period, in that post-war period, when Churchill gave a job to a guy called Harold Macmillan, who would later go on to become prime minister himself, they really believed that this was a moment to transform people's lives. Mm. Interestingly, at that time, the housing ministry was actually under public health. So housing was considered... That's very telling. It's very telling, isn't it? Housing was considered a public health issue. So it wasn't in a sort of housing department, technocratic department that is dealing with the housing market. It was seen as a public health issue. And so it's well worth watching a documentary called Kathy Come Home, which is about that kind of period where families were really living in a really precarious situation and officials from the public health department would come along and think, okay, you as a parent with this child and so on need a place because otherwise you're going to get sick, you're then going to be a burden on the healthcare system and then we're going to have to deal with that and then your child will have to be taken away into a foster uh, environment. We don't want that. That's another public health issue. 
So actually housing you means that we avoid a number of other knock-on effects. That's the mentality that was taking place in that sort of post-war period. Fast forward to sort of the 1970s, a lot of the council houses were very poor, very badly maintained, not properly financed. Post-war period, uh, and, and then the 1970s, really difficult periods where not much was being built, the miners' issues, a huge amount of you know, three-day week and so on. And then, of course, 1979, uh, uh, Margaret Thatcher comes to power. And in 1984, a, a, an act is passed in Parliament, which then essentially wants, wishes to transfer a lot of the housing stock to people. Mm. Otherwise, social housing. Social stock, housing, yeah. otherwise known as the right to buy. Mm. And the right to buy, let's not be under any illusions, in hindsight, it was a catastrophic mistake. But at the time, it was hugely popular, hugely popular for two reasons. Councils were thinking, if we just give it to the people, we don't have to worry about maintaining these properties anymore, and we're not going to get in trouble. Notting Hill, full of very squalor properties back then. Second reason, Margaret Thatcher thought, if you give people the houses, then you automatically mean that they become householders, they own their own homes, they get invested in the status quo, because they want the status quo to work, they wish to conserve the status quo, and they become conservatives, which was the strategic decision of why she did a lot of that. Funnily enough, um, as a side note, when the coalition government came in with David Cameron and Nick Clegg, the Liberal Democrats were saying, we need to have a, a major program of social housing. Apparently, David Cameron and George Osborne said, if you build more social housing, you're only going to create Labour constituencies. Why would you want to do that? So then Margaret Thatcher's decision then takes a huge amount of housing stock out without replacing it. Get to the early 1990s, massive liberalization of the financial markets. The landlord world begins. Mm -hmm. A lot of the houses that were sold to people essentially came back as landlords. And then a lot of those houses were now being given to councils to house homeless people, but this time they were paying for the same houses they gave away, they were now paying a landlord to house somebody who's homeless. Again, what continues is we're not building enough houses, but the demand is going up, a lot of the stock is being taken out, demand continues to go up, and a lot of people needing immigration has a big part to play in some of that, of course, and then so on and so on and so on, and then we get to the modern day era where a lot of local authorities don't even have social housing on their stock. Most of central London prime real estate has been bought by Arabs or uh, Russians. And most of the people who might have lived in these kind of zone one, zone two areas of London have moved out to places like zone four, Walthamstow and, and so on. And those people now can't afford to live there and moved out to big other cities, whether it's in Birmingham or elsewhere. And, that's, and then, of course, we've had 10 years of interest rates being kept artificially low. Normally, if you move the interest rates, it means that some of the people who shouldn't have a mortgage sort of drop off. We're going to see that next year. Great. <laughs> Sorry. But that, that 10 years of keeping the interest rates artificially low was really there to help people who were already on the property ladder, mm -hmm. not to help anyone else get on. Mm -hmm. And as I say in the book, they effectively created a Ponzi scheme, which now everyone is holding on for dear life. We may not be so lucky by this time next year. Yeah, and that, something, a really, really big theme in the book and something I'll probably delve into more depth a little later in our conversation is the people who have vested interest in maintaining the status quo the way it is with the, with the housing market. People like you and me now. 
Yeah, well, home, although I genuinely would say, so I, I managed to buy a flat two years ago and I genuinely would say that I would sacrifice housing, especially because I grew up on a council estate, I would sacrifice the, you know, appreciation of my house price in order to even out the market. Like, it's a really fundamental but you're, principle you're of very, you're in, you're in a minority in many Yeah, I, I probably, I probably am. And yeah. also it's kind of thing that's easy to say when it's probably not going to happen. But I, I, I do generally feel that way. Because also, I mean, that's one of the issues with the way the housing market works in the UK is that they're no longer treated as places to live and homes, they are treated as investment vehicles. Correct. And that, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a really important uh, point about that because the shift that took place of not having, not treating your house as a home, mm. but rather as an investment. A place to park cash for some people. Pension for some yeah, people. Yeah. That actually really took place also in the early 1990s because some of the people may remember when Robert Maxwell killed everyone's pension, the Mirror Group, yeah. a really interesting thing happened in the psyche of the nation where people who had grown up believing that if I put my money in my pension, I will be able to retire and it will be a decent income. That moment shifted something in the psyche of the nation when people started thinking, hang on, actually, so the money that I'm putting away isn't safe, and, but the bricks and mortars are. And that was also a big factor in people starting to see their homes, not just as a place to live, but rather, this is my inheritance. Yeah, this is what I'm going to pass down. End of, end of life care, or end of life. Exactly. Later, I mean, yeah, the fact, there, are a lot, there are a lot of people who plan to downsize when they hit retirement exactly. age in order to release equity to fund the rest of their, a their, lot of their people, pension. A, a um, lot of people think like that now. But I mean, something that there was a stat in your book, under David Cameron, and I wear my political leanings very boldly, very openly. But well, under you're very David Tory, Cameron, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not <laughs> the Tories. Um, under David Cameron, 39% of Conservative MPs were landlords. Now, what does that mean for how... 39, it's 39 members shocking, of Parliament. It's a very high proportion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What does that mean for housing policy? I mean, think about that, right? If you are 39% of people in, in that government or in that party are landlords, they have a direct interest in maintaining that system, right? So I do a lot of planning work. The direct consequence of this is I do a lot of planning work and it takes me around the country. And what I always see is two things that are as clear as day. One is the councils being stifled from building more housing that they need by the councillors who just don't want more housing in their borough. Just the other day, there's a guy called Chris Phillip, a member of parliament in Croydon, who was on the, on the BBC program, and he said, oh, one of the things that Liz Truss is gonna do is we're gonna liberalize the planning system and we're gonna build more housing. And Joe Coburn, he was on the Daily Politics, was like, oh, really? Well, look at this tweet. Is this you? Is this you? And there's a tweet of him saying, Croydon Council are selling off our, and it was, yeah. Croydon were building 120 affordable units. Mm. He was tweeting that Croydon Council was being taken over by developers. Mm. She's like, well, hang on, you're telling us this now, but this is you stopping housing being built in your own area. And he's like, oh, well, you know, houses got to be built where they need to be it's built nimbyism. and blah, blah, blah. It's, it's complete nimbyism. Yeah. And so for me, one of the things I touched upon in the book is in addition to that statistic is at the moment, the politicians are not willing to make decisions that are going to be unpopular or not in their interest today for the greater good. They're just not. And as long as that remains the case, the status quo will continue to be stifled and progress will be very, very difficult to make. So 
There's a question. Is it all the Tories' fault? It's not all the Tories' fault. Not at all, because what you're seeing across the country is even in Labour areas, what you are seeing is councils are being taken over by what I call the coalition of the unwilling. And usually it's people who will stand up and they want to get elected purely on the basis of, I will stop this development from happening. Mm. And so what then happens is that these people are not Tory or Conservative or Liberal Democrat. They're just independence. Mm. And the independence essentially means vote me in, I'll do what you need me to do. Turn up at a public inquiry. I'm always amazed. I look in the crowd and I go, hmm, no one under the age of 50. And they're all against it. <laughs> it makes sense. It makes complete sense. They will turn up and they'll say, oh, there's too much traffic or there's too much flooding. And I go, tell me, there's a guy who turned up in an inquiry I did in Lincolnshire. He was a, a, a former pilot in the army, retired. And in the, in, in the years that he'd lived there, he'd taken aerial photographs of his area, of his community area from his plane. Every, every five years, every five years, he would take a picture. Don't Google do that uh, now. He, sorry? <laughs> so don't Google do that now. No, no, no. But this is, I think this is about 10 years ago. It wasn't, mm. you know, it's much better than Google. Mm. He takes these amazing aerial photographs every five years. And he turned up at the inquiry and he said, look at these images. This is how my community has changed. He's in his 70s now. You know, and you want to build more housing? Look how much this has changed. And then the judge in the inquiry said to me, Mr. Mohammed, do you have any questions? Normally general public people, I don't ask questions because it's just no point. But I said, I've got two questions for, for the, the gentleman. I said, sir, you live over here. This is your house in this image. Eh? And I said, when did you move there? 1953 or something. How much did you buy your house for? Six and a half thousand pounds. I said, do you know what the average house price is in your area now? I don't know. I said, no further questions. Because mm. they just don't get it. Mm. You know, his, his kids, if he had kids, wouldn't be able to afford where he lives now. His grandkids certainly won't be able to afford it. But for them, it's a sort of, I'm on now, to hell with the Pull rest. Pull the ladder up, yeah. To, to hell with the rest. So many people turn up, you're like, oh, where do you live? Oh, you live over here. Oh, you live in that Taylor Wimpy site that was built in 2006. <laughs> but you're here now saying no to this development. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, to be honest, to, to be slightly generous in that sense, I think given as we've talked about earlier, given the housing market is structured the way it is and it is, you know, people's pensions or whatever. It's understandable. You, can under you, you know, you can understand. You won't agree with it. You can understand. I can definitely understand Why people it. are like that. And, and, and something that I wanted to talk about as well when I was asking whether it's all the Tories' fault, something you talk about in your book is that even under New Labour, and yes. from the 90s, or, you know, when Labour is in power, what do they do about Very know, good question. Stock? So what I say in the book is that, that what was interesting about the New Labour period was that when you had somebody like Gordon Brown, who was thinking extremely hard about child poverty mm. and thinking about Tony Blair when he would always talk about education, 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 and how they started that growth in the academies. Or when you think about the waiting list in the NHS when the Labour came into government and how much that went down, they were really, really attacking public services that were poor and fighting issues to do with inequality, particularly child poverty. But they completely dropped the ball on the housing issue because they just never connected the housing issue to everything else. Just and like I've just been talking yeah. how much the housing issue underpins all of this. Yeah. There is a reason why the housing issue was considered a public health issue in the, in the 1950s. So Labour, I would suggest, definitely contributed to the crisis that we are in now 
but not as directly willing and conscious about it as the Tories might have, for example. Mm. And so in that sense, I think they definitely caused an issue, but they didn't quite understand... It's failure that. to act. Uh, failure to act in itself is a problem. Yeah, right? exactly. I just want to give everyone a you know, fair hearing. Yeah. Something that you kind of touched on there is the generational differences. And you'll read this, you know, there'll, always, there'll be an article every kind of three months and someone who, you know, let's say they're a boomer in the sense of that's their generation. I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. Boomer is quite a loaded word, but they are a boomer. And they bought their house, God knows when, for 20 grand or something, and it's now worth half a million. And they say, well, in my day, we just buckled down and saved up. Oh, the interest rates were really high when I was growing up. And, you know, the reason that people my age generally can't afford houses is apparently because we're spending all of our money on avocado toast and And, Netflix. And Netflix. That's what I say in the book as well. Yeah, the classic. Why do they think that? And there's a real... And what's the reality, I guess, if we look at... Yeah. You know, the proportions of income and housing. Very, houses. very straightforwardly. Uh, you're saying to my, uh, my neighbours in their 70s, just down the road from me, bought their house in 1976 mm-hmm. for £22,000. Mm-hmm. It's now worth £1.2 million. Okay, well, wow. £22,000 wow. in 1976. Wow. £1.2 million today. They will say, we worked three jobs. Mm. We worked so hard. Do you know how hard it was to get a mortgage for £22,000? You know, and so on and so forth. Now, let's not take away from the fact that that generation worked hard. They saved. They might have gone through rationing. They might have gone through the three-day week power blackouts, Mm -hmm. all of which might be actually all coming back, but that's another story. (laughs) You know, without taking that away from them, the reality today is so far removed from that, that it's just not comparable for a variety of reasons. One, today, the affordability ratio between what you are earning and what a mortgage is are just on completely different planets. When you were in the 1970s, 1980s, banks were usually begging you to take a loan. If you were two healthy people with two jobs, the banks were willing to give you a 100% mortgage. I know somebody who got 110% mortgage. Sometimes they would pay you to, <laughs> to pay for a few more months, mm. okay? Today, no bank will touch you if you don't have at least 20% deposit. Some banks don't even lend I, I think, it. I think, I think they're just not to give, just to give some, some hope to people if that's not your position, that you can get a mortgage less than 20%, but it's a lot easier once you cross that threshold. But the problem with, with if you get a mortgage that's less than 20% uh, deposit, mm. you are effectively in the negative because the interest rates that are attached to that mortgage means that you're barely treading water. Mm. If you get a mortgage that you put down 20%, that's just about a good, comfortable position to be able to live and not literally just work for the bank. If you get a mortgage for 5%, Mm -hmm. you go to work every day for the bank. You're you're, going to struggle really to cover the mortgage and be able to live a decent life later on. It's much, much harder. But you're right, you can get a mortgage. What I'm saying is that 1976, the affordability ratios... The, the amount the bank was willing to lend to you, the houses that were available to you, the stock that was available to you was completely different. Today, if you try and go to anywhere in London and it's a house that, I don't know, let, let's just, for argument's sake, half a million. Go and do a viewing on a house that's half, half a million in London. There's 30 people around the corner. And then they will bid. And these crook, crooked, no offense to any, um, <laughs> crooked estate agents 
will do everything they can to try and pit one person against the other. So for me, in a nutshell, to answer your question, let's not take away from that boomer generation who may well have worked extremely hard to get what they wanted. And we need to respect that. But they also need to show some humility because the reality of what we face today is incomparable to what they went through. Mm. And frankly, the reality of what we face today is because fill that <laughs> fill that sentence. Leave that hanging there. there um, you go. I think we get we're getting. But then I also wonder: Do we focus to when we talk about the housing crisis and especially kind of generational rent and private rental? Do we focus too much on the young? I read an article in the Guardian a couple of weeks ago about you know the growing number of over fifties who are in the private within the private rental sector. I think there is a tendency for obvious reasons because the demographic breakdown means that you know it's generally younger people. But there is a growing issue of older people who also cannot get on the housing ladder and haven't been able to, to do that. I, I wrote an article. Um, Maybe it was your article. Uh, no, no, no. I wrote an article in the Financial Times okay. last Saturday, and I shouldn't do this, but I went and wanted to read the comments. And I have to say, it's the first time I'd ever written for the Financial Times. Mm. They're probably the most well-informed readers that you're ever likely to come across. They were so, so well-informed. But... I read about six comments that a lot of people liked because I just looked at the most liked mm. comments. About six or seven comments of people who were over 50 yeah. and they saying that they were renting. The yeah. They were over 50 saying, I've been renting for 10 years yeah. and I'm in the same predicament, but no one talks about us. Yeah. Everyone talks about the young people who are out, you know, out there, but actually I'm... One of them was saying she's 53 and she's in a house share. Oh, that's def- something that's she's definitely in a house right. share. That's with the article I read you know, as well. And I was like, wow. You know, and, and she was talking about just how much this was affecting her mental health yeah. and all of her, you know, all of these things. So there is definitely a wider conversation to be had. And maybe that's where the solidarity and the connection needs to be made with different generations and not mm-hmm. characterised everyone who's over 40 is living lush in, on, a, on the property ladder and so on. So I agree. Something I found really interesting in your book actually was your definition of housing insecurity. I tried to find the quote, I was going through it last night, but I couldn't find the exact words. So I will just paraphrase slightly. Yeah, go on, okay, maybe we can play this game. Um, because I think it's broader than what I went into the book thinking it was. But essentially, you extended your definition of housing security to those within the private rental sector whose tenancies could potentially end at any time. Correct. Which is pretty much anyone writing, renting privately as the current laws are in the Correct. UK. Correct. Because if you are living in a, if you're living in any rental sector you're, and you're living on a, what's called the assured short-term yeah. uh, tenancy, you're only really guaranteed 12 months, mm. right? And after six months, the landlord could give you two months notice and you're out. Mm. So, and after 12 months, you're on a rolling contract where it's... But know. after 12 months, the state agents come along and go, hey, we're going to put £100 on your, um, on your rent or whatever. So for me, why are those people not considered to be in insecure housing? If you go to somewhere like Germany and parts of France, you might be able to find in some places that they will say, actually, here's the rent and here's a three-year contract. Enjoy your space see you in three years. Mentally, if you think about that, if you're a human being mentally sleeping in a property where you think, I can breathe for three years, you are so much more productive. You're so much more secure. You're so much more willing to engage in life and society as a whole. As opposed to 12 months, takes you two months to move in, and then three months to actually feel like you're at home. And then you start thinking, my God, I've got to to sign another contract. 
With, you know. I just really appreciated that definition because I think it brings far more people kind of into the struggle. <clears throat> when I thought about when I was renting in London, I was like, I would never before reading your book have defined that as insecure housing. But then I looked back and it was like, did I feel secure? Did I fuck? Like, no. you know, I was constantly thinking about what could happen and when. And I, I think I faced two, I call them soft evictions in the sense that, you know, it's like you've got to move out given a month's notice in some case. I never felt truly secure. So I just thought that was really interesting because I don't know what the stats are of the proportion of people in the UK living within the private rental sector, but if we can essentially say pretty much all of them are living in secure housing, that really broadens the scope of who it is that we're trying to help. Exactly. Um, And that was deliberate because I thought to myself, I don't want to just write a book that seeks to speak to just people who might be considered homeless or people in council houses. Because I thought to myself, if I widen that definition, Mm. a lot more people can relate to what I'm talking about than not. Totally. Why is the private rental sector... You, so you mentioned Europe. It's really interesting. I have an aunt, family friend, who... She lives in Switzerland. She lives in Geneva. And, but, and she lives... You know, it's all very traditional. One of those lifts, you know, the kind of French lifts where you kind of crank... I don't want to say yeah, crank yeah, them, but, you know, know you that. kind of go up them. and yeah, it's all yeah, very yeah, scenic. Yeah. And I remember one of my earliest memories is going to visit her when we were five years old. They live in communes as well, don't they? A lot of them in Switzerland. I don't know about that. She lived in a sort of flat in an apartment in Geneva. But, yeah, potentially true. And... A couple of years ago, I made a comment to my mum, because my mum had gone to visit her. She goes to visit her every so often. And I was like, oh, yeah, she's still in that flat. You know, flat. And I was, I was like, I wonder, oh, I wonder how much she paid for it. And my mum was like, she doesn't own that flat. And I was like, what? She was like, yeah, she rents it. And I was like, she has been in the same flat for at least 25 years. That is unthinkable yeah. in this country. Yeah, yeah. But she was like, the laws are complete. Like, she will be in that flat as long as she wants, yeah. and essentially until in, the day it's, she... It's the same in Sweden. In Sweden, you can buy a flat in an apartment, but as part of that, it's not exactly like a leasehold, Mm. but you join a management committee, Mm. you own it, okay? You've paid a significant amount of money, and and Sweden's not cheap. Mm. You pay for that flat, but you're not allowed to do a rental thing. You're not allowed to sell it without the commune community sort of having a word about it. And people who might be, certain numbers are rented, you're not allowed to be turfed out sort of willy-nilly. They have that kind of security of tenure in places like Switzerland and Sweden that allows for that kind of thing. Incidentally, recently Switzerland did something interesting where they were finding that a lot of the bankers who live in Geneva and Zurich were buying these really, really expensive flats in the center of town, and a lot of them were leaving them empty. So the Swiss government passed a, a law that effectively overnight meant that if your apartment or flat was like empty for more than like six months, that year you pay the equivalent of three times your council tax. Like that, you know? And then all of a sudden, the flats were not so empty anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are close to, I can't remember the statistic. I won't give you the statistic, but in Kensington and Chelsea, In Kensington and Chelsea, where Grenfell happened, I will not give you the statistics, but it's thousands of houses and thousands, okay, of units are empty. Kensington and Chelsea alone, okay? Yeah. Thousands. But that's, that's, especially with the London property market, that's the thing, people just part their cash. You can put, you can buy a house for X amount. I don't know what's going to happen now. We'll talk about what's going to happen now, now that, you know, interest rate, low interest rates seem to be at an end. But you could just park your cash there, do absolutely nothing with it. The value of it, appreciate. You, you couldn't think of a better investment 100%. than London property. All those properties are across the river in Nine Elms, you know, that area of where Battersea Power yeah. Station is. Yeah. 
They will buy them off plan in Hong Kong. They will keep them empty for five to 10 years. They will pay a council tax. The council tax is what, 2,000 pounds at most a year? You pay your 2,000 pounds a year, keep it empty for five to 10 years, and 10 years later, you can put it on the market and say it's a brand new flat, but now worth 10 years more money. That's happening in London. It's outrageous. Yeah, I mean, to kind of move things along and think about be a bit more solutions focused and maybe try and be a bit more optimistic. Um, And you've kind of alluded to some of what needs to be done in order to, I guess, reform the housing market and to improve the situation. I want to break it down to a few different sections. So first of all, what needs to be done by government and politicians in order to improve the kind of situation we find ourselves in? So in terms of government policy, uh, if I was to pick the biggest and the boldest decisions they need to make is bring back the powers and the finance capabilities of local authorities to be able to build housing. There was a time where local authorities could borrow from the banks at very, very generous rates against future properties they were going to build. So they are borrowing from the bank against the security of something they are yet to build. They used to be able to do that. And banks would lend to them because they're thinking this is a local authority underpinned by government policy. We will do that. And that's how we managed to build a huge amount of housing. So that's one idea. The second idea for me, big, big idea, is we need to have a conversation about something called the Green Belt. The Green Belt policy that was put forward in 1947 is essentially, if you guys go home tonight and you just Google Green Belt and wherever you live, Green Belt Birmingham, Green Belt London, Green Belt Manchester, the Green Belt is essentially an area of open land that is designed to ensure that people don't overspill and mix up areas and stop urban sprawl. Now, the Green Belt is essentially open space that makes sure that London doesn't become part of Surrey. Surrey doesn't merge into Kent. Is that the only reason for its existence? Because I also, how do environmentalists feel about the Green Belt? A good question. A lot of environmentalists will tell you the Green Belt is there because it's a great piece of land that holds habitats and, and so on and so forth. Some of that is true, most of that is not. But also in terms of, in relation to climate change. Yes, true, but a lot of the land that we do have that we can build on sustainably Mm -hmm. is completely out of bounds. So the conversation we need to have is how much of the green belt can we sustainably release in order to build more housing without compromising our environmental aspect of things? Because the idea of the green belt, as I say in the book, is somehow associated in the national psyche with the concept of the green and pleasant land. When a lot of the green belt is crap. A lot of the green belt is not even green. It's like hotchpotch of crap around cities that just is derelict. So allowing local authorities to have that power and finances and having a conversation about all this derelict land. Those are the two things that I would say if the government managed to tackle could be something. But a lot of the green belt and a lot of the green and pleasant land happens to be in very much the shires and Tory heartlands. Mm. And it's not, you know, exactly a vote winner. So what I'm talking about is not exactly a vote winner, but um, it's what is needed. Yeah, just just very quickly, I'm just going to say, I am going to open things out for questions in about five minutes. So let the ideas percolate, but I'm going to ask a few more questions so myself that's first. That's government. What, what do you mean? No, no, so I'm saying to answer your question, that's why. Oh, yeah, government. sorry, for government. For government. Yeah. Well, my next question was, 
What can we do on an individual level? On an individual level, if anything, it's a good question. On an individual level, I think you need to lobby your local MPs, get more involved. In lobby them for what? Lobby them to stop making short-term decisions that only affect their electoral success. Mm -hmm. You need to get more involved in your local planning committees. I know it's boring, but if you're a young person, those decisions that are being made by those grey hairs—no offense to you—that <laughs> are that are going to affect you, you need to be more involved mm. on an individual level. Find out what your local council is doing. Find out what your local councillor is doing. Find out what they're doing to make housing more affordable. Get more involved. Then one of the issues that you point out in your book is that being invested in your community like that doesn't happen as much when someone is an insecure, transient renting. I, you know, it's a kind of contradict what I was saying earlier about what I think my values are. I've only really gotten involved with anything to do with my local council once I actually managed to buy a flat and then all of a sudden I'm quite interested in, of course you are. in what's going on and of you know so like, now I actually know who my council is. You're like is. you're looking on your, your I window. genuinely I've had to stop myself from doing that because I became a curtain <laughs> twitcher. Exactly but before because then you didn't care. Yeah I didn't. Of course you didn't I, care but I now if you see that somebody things. trying to build something next door you're like hang on does yeah. he have planning permission? Yeah you know you, you become because you're invested in the local community. Exactly. I think it's it's really hard to persuade people who might be living on the other side of London in six months' time to get involved in those things. Exactly. And I talk about that in the book, about getting involved in your local community. Doing All of that really comes if you feel you've got roots, if you feel that you're actually settled. And that settlement is very, very hard when the washing machine breaks and you're like, oh, I've got to call the landlord now and he might not come and see me for another two weeks. Mm. My final question before I open things out to the audience, how much optimism do you have about any of these measures being put in place? I'm an inherently optimistic person generally, and, and, and that has always been my nature, but I feel genuinely not optimistic at a political level that much is going to be done. Yeah. And I know this might sound really dark, but I really think that the instability that we've seen in the markets and how the interest rates are going up really could be the beginning of something. I feel something is happening now. We're having a massive meltdown about people losing you know, property prices and stuff like that. And in a way, I'm just sitting there going, ooh, this is interesting, this is different. So I'm pessimistic about the people who are making the decisions, mm -hmm. but I'm optimistic that the current climate has brought to the fore just how unsustainable our housing system is. Mm. And hopefully now something could come out of this. I think a lot of people who might have thought they were secure, either are now realising they weren't, or will be pushed into insecurity in various ways, whether it's through unaffordable mortgages, exactly. those exactly. mortgages presumably being passed on to renters in the form of exactly. these prices. Exactly. I mean, something you say in your book is essentially, and you mentioned earlier, politicians, they, this is kind of the problem with, with with the short-termism of politicians generally, because often they're, there, they're out to win votes. Yeah, to stay that's what they care about. Jacob Rees-Mogg, funnily enough, people know Jacob Rees-Mogg being this sort of, you know, intergenerational wealth. Jacob Rees-Mogg's sister, sister put aside, she's also quite rich. Jacob Rees-Mogg's wife, her family own a huge amount of land around Somerset. Huge amount of land around Somerset. Now you tell me, do you really think that guy in government cares about us? Well, it's back to what we were saying earlier, 39% of MPs under David Cameron, they're not going to vote against their interests. How are they going or to legislate do against their interests. How? They're always the same tropes. If you ever see a politician being asked about it, they always have the same tropes. 
building the right houses in the right places, <laughs> using brownfield sites first. We must build with community engagement. We must build with community acquiescence. What community acquiescence? The only people who turn up are the people on the property ladder and they always say no. Mm. So not all, but mostly for the most part, they say no mm. for whatever reason. So how do you expect to make progress in that kind of context? Anyway, I, we, we need to make sure we finish on a positive note, by the way. Yeah, no. We need to be up. Well, um, <laughs> Over to open things out to questions, the audience. Yeah, I've got loads. Brilliant. I'll take three in a row if you want, and then we yeah. can answer them and get as much through. Got a few minutes, so let's... Thank you very much for that presentation. I'm just wondering if there's another aspect to this. I want to hear your thoughts on whether there's another aspect to this, where the housing crisis is also being driven by too many people wanting to live in too few parts of the country. Correct. Just in recent memory, Stoke had the £10 house scheme. I believe Liverpool did. I believe Middlesbrough did and Sunderland. Where there is housing, but because our economy works in its particular way of being drawn into honeypot areas, that's yes. where the people go as well. That's a big part of the conversation. Definitely. And I talk about that in the book and in particular about a lot of the big housing crisis that we're seeing is in the places that people want to live and where the jobs are. If you look at Vancouver, Toronto, London, all the major cities where the jobs are clustered is definitely where the massive, massive crisis is. There is no doubt about that. So there is a slightly bigger conversation to be had about how our economy functions mm -hmm. and where the jobs are. And in a way, actually, now that I had a really good friend of mine who was thinking about moving out of London to buy something, and she found a three-bed house in Blackpool for 100 grand. And she said, I'm out of here, actually, because my job, I'm doing it all online. Mm. <laughs> So she went to Blackpool, her daughter, her and her daughter, she's a single mum, £100,000, and she's like, I work from home now. Yeah. And I get to pick her up, bring her home, we have a nice garden. Okay, I'm living in Blackpool, not exactly, you know, Finsbury Park, but I'm happy. And so, you know, God willing that she doesn't have to get a job that means that she has to be somewhere physically, but that's an ex exciting kind of thing that's happened since the pandemic, right? Yeah. So... Sorry, the lady. Um, yeah, so you spoke a lot about um, solutions and quite rightly focused on building more homes. But I was curious how much importance would you place on ownership? So in terms of trying to prevent second homeowners, trying to curtail yep. the yep. very extractive private rental sector, trying to bring more homes into council ownership yep. and so on. Because I, I find that often there's almost two, two camps and... You know, there's the camp that talk a lot about building more homes, there's the camp that talk a lot about ownership, but it sort of feels like you need a little bit of both. But, yeah, you yeah. know, from your perspective, yeah, how, where would you kind of weigh them against each other, I guess? Is, is building more homes the silver bullet or do we need a lot more of, of, you know, trying to change the ownership models as well? Yeah, very good question. So in the book, I explain that we have to also get away from this conversation about it has to be about ownership. But in a way, that's quite rich coming from me that I am an owner, so I don't want to feel like I'm lecturing somebody else about not owning because there are certain people who do want to own and who want to have that security, and we have to give them that opportunity. But I completely agree with you that, for me, I'm seeing a lot of the young people today, a lot of the people don't really want to feel like they're being tied down. Some people often want to just move and go and live in Canada for, for three years. They want to go and move to somewhere else and live there without having to worry about a mortgage that is tying them down somewhere else. So I definitely would argue for a slightly different conversation about ownership. I would also argue another point, which is part of the conversation that we're having about the baby boomers earlier, is that 
we don't give enough of those people an opportunity to downsize. So a lot of people who bought their houses a long time ago and their kids have flown the nest or they didn't have any kids are now living in houses that are really too big for them but they don't want to move out of their community, but there aren't enough opportunities for them to be able to downsize and still stay within their area. And that's another conversation to be had because I've come across a lot of people who are older who do want to move and who do want to downsize, but the opportunities just aren't there. So I would add that part of the conversation. So I definitely do not think that building more housing is the silver bullet, but it's a big part of the picture. Can I just add as well, I think something you talk about really well in the book is the fact that it makes sense that Britain is a nation focused on home ownership because for the most part, it's the only route to housing security yeah. in the UK. And if the private rental sector were reformed in such a way that you could achieve security through renting, like my aunt in Geneva, who yeah. doesn't care about owning her place because she, you know, renting, owning, same diff to her. She's still, like I said, been there 25, exactly. probably 30 years now. Exactly. So I think part of the issue as well, it's like, yeah, we could de-emphasize Home, it actually makes sense to aspire to home ownership in the UK given the way things are set that's up. The, and that's the only way. Yeah. Exactly. No, I completely agree. Yeah, sorry, anyway. Thank you. Hi. Do you think there is an argument for really restructuring how the planning laws work in terms of what they facilitate? So the whole, there's this whole thing about building on brownfield site. Well, has that really happened? And the whole thing, you know, what people can object about. There seems to be a lot of, of quagmire built into yep. the whole planning system, which doesn't help. It helps me financially. <laughs> well, and I'm very happy for that. Well done. <laughs> um, no, but I, I just think that the whole, it, it's just a quagmire that people get stuck in and entrenched in. Yeah, and yeah. They, they, have, they hold positions just because they can. I agree. The, to the guy at the back, I'll come back. Yes. I agree with you that Mrs. Thatcher's decision was one of the most ruinous decisions we've had in any government uh, since the war. And the point being that the, the whole social fabric of our nation has been mucked about with. And when we hear them trying to build something now, they say, we'll have a nice social mix. It never works. We had the wonderful social mix if you lived in St. Ives, you would have a council house on the outskirts. Everybody was happy. In the countryside, we haven't mentioned it at the moment, but similarly, those council houses are the ones which have been taken up by second homeowners. Yep. It's an absolute tragedy. I agree. And when you think that within a year of it happening, we had the Tesco heiress being fined 30 million pounds for letting our friends buy the ones in Westminster. Yeah. I just don't know how we allowed that to happen. I completely agree. And I'll tell you, I was just trying to find a passage in the book about that. Because in places like Cornwall and St. Ives, they've actually stopped second home ownerships and have banned a lot of the second home ownerships. In Vancouver, if you're not a resident, you're not allowed to buy something. In New Zealand, there's a massive curtailment of foreign ownership. So a lot of the stuff I'm talking about is already out there and already in place and already implementable. The planning system, I, I talk about in great detail here. I think that personally, the planning system 
is not the problem that everybody thinks that it is. It's the way we interact with it. First of all, it's a completely arcane system of hodgepodge of policies that people rarely understand, hence why people like me are making living out of it. But actually, the planning system, the best way to understand it, is this technocratic system of facts, data, statistics, technical details that decide how many houses, how much cars can handle this particular community, the roads, the lighting, the schools that are needed to facilitate that particular housing, the GP, the shops that you're going to need. All of that is the like, statistical hard data that specialists deal with. But then we try and pull that through a sieve of politics. And what comes out is just shit. <laughs> because the sieve that you're putting it through is a short-term, individualistic, selfish, political system. But actually what the technocrats come out with of city planning, no country does it better than we do, genuinely. If you ever fly into the UK, when you see those houses, the way they are planned, and the grid, <clears throat> and the roads, that's, that is not by accident. That is planning at its best, you know, from an aerial perspective. If you go home tonight and you look on Google Earth and you see your streets, that didn't happen by accident. A bunch of people got together and figured that out and thought that through from your sewage to the air that you breathe to the light that comes into your house. All of that was thought through. But we just don't do it anymore because by the time the decision comes out, the politicians have got hold of it and choked it and killed it at source. And that's the problem. So the planning system in of itself is a product of our ambitions, but just being poorly implemented. That's my argument about that. One, one last thing I wanted to mention is that um, I hear that in the private sector they can ignore the measurements which were set out so clearly for council houses in the 50s. Yes. And so that you can build a room like a cupboard. The, the, cup, and the quality. The Whereas, quality, yeah. Now, who's in control of that? And shouldn't there be a regulation that nobody can buy build a house smaller than, with rooms smaller than such and yeah, such? No, I, there's a big issue of policy there, and that is a big problem for sure. Okay, unfortunately, that is all we have time for. This has been such an enriching conversation. Thank you guys so much for listening and for your questions. It's really added a lot to it. I cannot recommend Hashi's book anymore it's a home of one's own it's so brilliant i think it's really clear it's also you know a short essay so you can read it one evening but i think housing is something that affects us all we all need housing we all want secure housing so if that's you and that is every single person in this room then you should absolutely buy this book so we're going to be outside just at the front desk cashy will be signing copies of the book you can ask him more questions if you want i just want to say thank you so thank much you. for, for coming talking to us and for making housing entertaining well, thank you Thank you for listening to this episode of the Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at BHamLitFest. All information about the festival and upcoming events can be found on our website www.birminghamliteraturefestival.org. The Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast is produced by 11C and Birmingham Podcast Studios for Writing West Midlands. 